Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Friends, if we were to take a survey and go around asking people if if they could think of the name of an angel from the Bible, I suspect that a lot of people, even people who who maybe don't spend much time in church, could probably list a couple of names. It's it's the Christmas season. A lot of people have heard the Christmas stories, so we'd probably have quite a few people mention the name of Gabriel. Uh, We might also have some of the more Bible-savvy responders think of Michael, uh, the name of an angel who's mentioned a few times in the Bible. And I suspect that we would have not a few people who might think of the name of an angel and the name Harold would come to their mind. Now, as, as far as we know, there are not actually any celestial beings named Harold, certainly none that are mentioned in the Bible, but there are enough people who go around at certain times of the year singing the words, hark the herald angels sing, that I think we could understand why someone might get the wrong impression. After all, it's not like most of us go around using the word herald each and every day. For some of us, probably the only time of the year that we do say that word is when we're singing this Christmas carol. This beloved hymn of the Christmas season, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was penned by the great hymn writer Charles Wesley in 1739. Now, Charles Wesley and his older brother John, as many of you know, were among the co-founders of a reform movement that grew up out of the Church of England in the early 1700s. They focused on personal piety, on evangelism, and on religious revival. And eventually, this movement grew into what we today know as the Methodist family of churches, which is still an influential branch of the Christian family tree today, as our brothers and sisters across the street would like us to know. And Charles, through his hymn writing, has had an influence far beyond Methodist and Wesleyan circles. Over a period of about 50 years, Charles Wesley wrote about 6,500 different hymns. And and as if that weren't impressive enough, many of them have stood the test of time. They're still used today. Some titles from Charles Wesley that you might recognize include Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which we just sang earlier this morning, as well as Christ the Lord is Risen Today, which we sing every Easter Sunday, Hark the herald angels sing, of course, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, and can it be that I should gain, and more songs that are still beloved by many Christians around the world. In in fact, since this list includes not only Christmas songs, but Christ the Lord is risen today, it is entirely possible that for individuals who find themselves in church primarily on Christmas and Easter, they hear more song lyrics from Charles Wesley than from any other Christian hymn writer combined. That's a pretty significant influence. Now, now Charles wrote this song when he was a young man, and he was filled with awe 
as he pondered the wonder and the mystery of Christ's birth. About 14 years after it was originally published, the Wesley's friend and fellow revivalist George Whitfield made a few changes to the lyrics, and then the song was published again in 1753. During the early 1800s, it was added to the Church of England's prayer book as a hymn for Christmas Day. Now, if a song gets added to the end of the Book of Common Prayer, that's a pretty hearty endorsement. And it continued to be used, rising in popularity after the 1850s, when it was set to a new tune, the tune that we know today, which was written by composer Felix Mendelssohn. From there, this song made itself known throughout the world. By the year 1902, it was said to have been translated into more languages and included in more hymnals than any other Christmas hymn of its day. And by now, it has ranked among the best-known and most-loved Christmas hymns for over a century. It's frequently included in the annual service of nine Lessons in Carols at the King's College of Cambridge. And on the other side of the spectrum, it was introduced perhaps to many of us, myself included, through a Charlie Brown Christmas. And as we saw, it also made it into the Charlie Brown Christmas sequel in that creative sequence of scenes that we just watched this morning. So not only is this song well-known and fun to sing, it is also rich and deep in the message that it proclaims. When we sing this song, we raise a rousing manifesto of robust Christian theology, of the incarnation, and of the atonement. This is a hymn that is jumping out of its skin to tell us who Jesus is and what he has come to do. All in all, this is a beautiful and, and masterful hymn, though it's not without its shortcomings, as all hymns, even the greatest, are. It's a wonderful hymn for us to take time to look at this morning in our sermon series focusing on the carols of Christmas. And so as we explore this beloved song together, we find a beautiful expression of who Jesus is as our newborn king, as the incarnate deity, as the son of righteousness and the woman's conquering seed. So I invite you, friends, to go ahead and open up your Bible or your Bible app to Luke chapter 2. We'll be jumping around Scripture a little bit, but we'll start there. And I also invite you to grab a pew hymnal if it's nearby and open that to Psalm 184 if you'd like to follow along. In the opening stanza of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we encounter Jesus Christ as the newborn king whose birth the angels came to announce. This, ver this verse is a poetic meditation on the angel's message to the shepherds outside Bethlehem that night that is recorded in Luke chapter 2, especially in verses 10 through 14, where we read, but the angel said to them, to the shepherds who were terrified by the sudden appearance of the angel, they said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
and we read in verse 13 that suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And we'll pause there because that's where we find the heart of this first verse of our hymn. Weaving together some of these ideas, Wesley has written these words, Hark, the herald angels sing. And and let's pause and talk about what we're seeing here because hark is another one of those words that has pretty much fallen out of use today. You know, when there's something that Mary and I want to tell to our kids, would we say, hark, Matthias, and lend your ear to what we have to say? Well, in our household, maybe you wouldn't be surprised if we said that. (laughs) But in most households, that's not the kind of wording that we use. But hark simply means listen. Hark is to the ears what behold is to the eyes. It's an invitation to stop and to pay attention to what's going on. Well, pay attention to what? In this case, to the message that the angels bring. The phrase herald angel is perhaps a little bit redundant since the word angel in the Bible means messenger. So uh, it's kind of saying, hark the messenger, messenger sing. Um, But, you know, it's, it's helpful to clarify that there's a message being delivered. When the Bible mentions angels, which it does quite a bit, it is referring not to a kind of being so much as a kind of function, that the angels serve as heavenly messengers and emissaries, agents who are carrying out the missions assigned to them by God. So so what, according to the hymn, is the message that the angels bring? Wesley writes, glory to the newborn king, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So how do we respond to this good news? He says, joyful all ye nations rise. That reflects the fact that, as the angel said, this is good news for all people. So all the nations are to rise and join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim that Christ is born in Bethlehem. And then the first line is repeated, hark, The herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Now, if if you've been paying close attention to the words that we've seen in Luke chapter 2 and to the words that we just read from this Christmas herald, you may have noticed that things aren't exactly the same between those two sets of words. So, So this is an appropriate time for me to pull out my mug here and point out a few actually kinds of observations about what we see going on. Now, first, actually, the Bible doesn't really say that the angels sang a song at Bethlehem. Now, if you look closely at verse 13, it says that they were praising God, which could include singing, but doesn't have to, and they were saying, glory to God in the highest. Now, now, could the angels have been singing that night? Sure, they could have been singing, but they also could have been speaking or shouting or yodeling or whispering. The Bible doesn't really tell us how they chose to communicate this message. Instead, it focuses more on the message itself. And when we're on the topic, actually, the Bible doesn't really say that the angels said glory to the newborn king. Look at the words in your Bible. They said glory to God in the highest. They were declaring that 
Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior had been born. But the word king doesn't even appear at all in our passage. Now, now that's, that's not a bad paraphrase. Jesus is the king. We know that. And so it's no trouble for us to say that. But, but it's interesting that what the hymn says the angel said isn't actually what the Bible says the angel said. And when in doubt, we want to go with what the Bible has to say. And while we're still on the topic of what the Bible has to say and doesn't have to say, actually, the Bible doesn't really say that this gathering of angels over Bethlehem was, was an angelic chorus. Instead, it refers to this gathering using the Greek word that, that refers to an army. So, so the language of a great company of the heavenly host is military language. The, the image here that is created for us is that of, of the angelic army of the Lord coming down to salute the birth of its commander-in-chief. And speaking of choirs and singing, actually, the Bible doesn't really actually say ever that angels sing. Now, now there are other celestial beings, such as the four creatures at the throne of God and the 24 elders gathered around in that passage in Revelation that are described as singing. But if you look at the references to the word angel in the Bible, they're described as doing lots of things, like giving instructions, delivering messages, leading people, correcting people, fighting battles, and carrying out all sorts of different missions. But one thing that they're not actually mentioned as doing is singing. So somehow we've gotten the idea that they're rather musically inclined, but there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that angels are any more or less musically inclined than we are. So it's not out of bounds to imagine them singing. Certainly, if, if we think it's worth singing about the birth of Christ, then I would imagine that they would too. But again, it just shows that we've gone a step beyond what the Bible actually says. And I know I've already messed with our picture of the angels at Christmas enough, but I'll go ahead and go all the way. Actually, the Bible doesn't really say that the angels have wings or, or, or fly around the way that we picture. Now, the cherubim and the seraphim that are described in prophetic passages, they are mentioned as having wings, but in the hundreds of references to angels spread throughout the Bible, wings just aren't mentioned. And, and though we often picture the angels of Luke 2 as being up in the sky when they speak to the shepherds, if, if you look at the text, Luke doesn't tell us where they were or weren't. I mean, they, they could have been just as easily on the ground, which is where angels usually are in the Bible when they appear to people and deliver messages. And, and when angels appear to people in the Bible, often it takes those people a little while to realize that the person they're talking to is an angel, which suggests that the angels tend to appear to people using a form that looks like they are one of us. And so, okay, I'm sorry. I, I know I've, I've ruined Christmas, or at least I've, I've called into question some of our beloved traditions and, and the ways that we visualize and tell this cherished story of Christ's birth. It, yet, beloved as some of these traditions are, 
it's valuable for us to recognize that sometimes when we tell the Christmas story, there are, there are certain things that we add, and there are certain gaps that we fill, and we do this with different parts of the Christmas story, and it's okay for us to do that, to imagine what it might have been like. But it's also good for us every now and then to stop and peel back some of those things, those traditions and ideas that have accumulated over the years, and to ask ourselves, what does the Bible really say? And how does Scripture invite us to visualize these things a little bit differently? And that doesn't mean that we have to discard these traditions. After all, it if we can sing We Three Kings of Orient Are, knowing that the Magi weren't technically kings and probably weren't from what we consider to be the Orient today, and there's nothing in the Bible that specifies that there were precisely three of them, but if we can still sing the song worshipfully, and if, if we can still have our nativity scenes with a stable and a donkey, even though the donkey's not exactly mentioned and the stable was probably really a cave, then there is nothing wrong with us singing about angelic choirs serenading shepherds from above, just so long as we have the humility to keep Scripture first and to hold on to the pictures that we envision loosely and to allow Scripture to shake up our imaginations a little bit from time to time. So, so no, I'm, I'm not telling you to go home and dismantle your manger scenes or to go buy extra wise men so you're sure to have more than three or to throw away the donkey or to cut the wings off of the angel and give it a spear instead of a trumpet. I'm not telling you to do any of those things. But what I am asking you to do, what I'm asking all of us to do is to be willing to set our usual picture of the shepherds and the angels on a shelf for a moment and to consider what alternative picture the text may be showing to us. To God's people living under the rule of a foreign emperor who every day see battalions of soldiers of this occupying military force whose presence tells them, you belong to us, Caesar is Lord, resistance is futile. To these lowly and beleaguered people, a celestial messenger appears, lighting up their darkness, telling them, the Lord is here. Your deliverer has arrived. The true king has come. And then the army of heaven shows up, not arrayed for battle, but here as a liberation force, belonging to a king whose victory has already been won. And joyfully, the ranks of the heavenly host raise their voices in a triumphant proclamation that God is on his throne. Glory be to God in the highest place and on earth, peace, peace to the people of his good pleasure. Their message is both an outpouring of praise to the Lord and a declaration that a new day for his people has dawned, that sinful humanity now has peace with God and peace with one another because of what this newborn king has come to do. Now, regardless of how we picture this scene playing out in our minds, how are we to respond I think Wesley gives us really good advice here. He says, let us hark, let us stop and listen. 
let's slow ourselves down. Let's hit the pause button on the busyness of our lives and consider the message of peace and praise that the angels bring to us. And then let us rise and join with them in announcing Christ's triumph. Christ is born. A new day has dawned. A new king is in charge. And he has come to bring us joy and peace. So let us proclaim this news to all people. Well, that's the newborn king that we meet in verse 1, the verse that we'll spend the most time looking at because it's perhaps the most familiar to us and interacts the most with the story of Christ's birth in the Gospels. But the second stanza of this Christmas hymn tells us more about who this king is, that he is, in fact, the incarnate deity, God in flesh and blood. This stanza opens by affirming who Christ is, that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Christ, the highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. This reminds us that Jesus is truly God. And if, if you've been attending the Theology Connection Hour class in recent weeks, you probably know where I'm going next with this. That the New Testament clearly and consistently teaches this, that Jesus is truly God. And nowhere is this quite as beautifully expressed as it is in the words of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is described here as being both with God and being God. He is the creator. He brings us life and light as verse 3 of our hymn attests. But Jesus also became truly man. As Hark the Herald Angels Sing, verse 2 reminds us, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. What does this mean, late in time? Did, did baby Jesus miss his cue? Well, when Charles Wesley used the phrase late in time, he was probably referring to the words of Hebrews 1, which opens by saying, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also he made the universe. Late in time, then, is a reference to the last days. And, and by the way, the New Testament doesn't speak of the last days as, as something we're waiting for in the future, but instead as a present reality that began at Christ's birth. These last days, inaugurated at Christ's birth, are unfolding according to God's perfect plan. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 also tells us, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So we can safely say here that Jesus was neither late nor was he early. He arrived precisely when he meant to. And now that brings us to the emotional crescendo of this verse. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, 
Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus is not just God and not just man. He is the God-man. He brings these together in one person. He is deity incarnate. Jumping ahead to what John's gospel continues to tell us in chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The Word, who we just read is God, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He is God in the flesh. And within this flesh, as if looking through a veil, we catch a glimpse of God Himself. John 1.18 tells us, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. And that's an amazing thing to think about. That when we gaze upon Jesus, we behold the countenance of God Himself. As the second verse tells us, in Jesus Christ, the glorious and everlasting Lord of the universe has drawn near to us as one of us. So how do we respond to this? Well, in the words of the hymn, we behold and we welcome him, the God-man. We invite him anew to live with us, to dwell with us. We make it our glorious pursuit to know him and to make him known to others. And this brings us to the third stanza of our hymn in which Christ is displayed to us as the glorious and brilliant son of righteousness whose arrival ushers in a glorious new day for the broken world and for a fallen humanity. Wesley urges us to rise and greet this glorious one. He says, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Now, this, this title, Prince of Peace, comes from Isaiah 9, 6, where the promised child is hailed as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We celebrate this reality this morning as we light the peace candle. And the next title mentioned in this verse is Son of Righteousness. This comes from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, where it says, But for you who revere my name, says the Lord, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. We see this imagery of the light of the sun rising with healing continue in this Christmas song. For in the language of John 1, verse 4, Jesus brings not just light, but life itself. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And now we reach the high point of the third stanza. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. These lines remind us that the glorious son of righteousness for a time set his glory aside in order to save us. In these words, we hear echoes of Philippians chapter 2, in which Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to use to his advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He took the nature of a servant. He became obedient to death itself, even death on a cross. Yet in his dying, death itself was defeated. And indeed, death has begun to work backwards. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23, proclaims, 
but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And who are those who belong to him? Those who receive the second birth spoken of in the lyrics to this song and spoken of by Jesus in John chapter 3. Those who have been born of water and the Spirit. It is through this second birth that Jesus gives us a new heart and breathes new spiritual life into our lifeless souls. And once we receive this new life from him, nothing can take it away from us. When he returns, we will share in that ultimate victory. But even now, we have the hope that even though we face darkness, even though we face death, death can only affect us physically. Death cannot touch us spiritually because in body and soul, in life and in death, we belong to Jesus Christ. And so for this reason, even physical death will not last forever. But if we're honest, we... We live in a world where death seems to have the upper hand. Right now, in many of our lives, death appears to have the victory. But Jesus has already dealt death a mortal blow. Death is dying. Death is in its own death throes. Because Jesus is alive, we too shall live with him. When we pass from this earthly life, our souls will enter his presence. When he returns to earth in victory, he will bring us with him. He will raise our bodies up again, new and perfect, never to taste death again. But even now, we need this reminder. Because, friends, we are still feeling death's sting. We are still reeling from loss. Our souls are weighed down with sorrow. We mourn, we lament, we shed tears. And Jesus meets us where we are. In the midst of a season whose festive and merry tone can sometimes seem like mockery to us when we have really tasted the true bitterness and brokenness of life in a sin-wrecked world. When peace on earth, goodwill toward men sounds hollow and impossible to our ears, Jesus sees us where we are. And he meets us where we are. He knows our pain. He knows our grief. He knows our heartache. And he knows it well, and he came to put a stop to it. Jesus was born in order to rob death of its sting. He was born so that we no more may die. He was born to raise up the sons and the daughters of earth to new and everlasting life. Because the grave could not contain him, it will not ultimately contain us. We will rise again to revel in the wonder of a world made new, on that day when Christ returns, escorted once more by the hosts of heaven in full array, to claim his throne and regain all that has been lost. For indeed, Christ has already won the victory, as the little-known fourth stanza of this Christmas hymn reminds us. Jesus, the newborn king of Bethlehem, has triumphed over sin and death as the woman's conquering seed. The fourth stanza, which is, which is less known to us, is a jubilant celebration of Christ's victory. But it is also 
an eager plea for his kingdom to come and his will to be done in our lives. And in these words, we cry out to him, come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy heavenly, thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And then, of course, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. There are two rich themes woven together in this verse. First is the theme of the gospel promise found in Genesis 3, 14, and 15. At the fall of man, we read that God's promise even then told us that the deliverer would come. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This promise has been fulfilled in Jesus he is the seed of woman who is born to conquer the grave and born to crush the head of that serpent. He has done this decisively through his life, death, and resurrection. The serpent's head is crushed. The seed of woman has triumphed. And that brings us to the second theme woven into this verse. The idea that Jesus has come as a second Adam to restore through his righteousness what was lost by the first Adam's sin. One of the places where Paul talks about this is Romans chapter 5, which says in verse 18 and 19, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam has triumphed. Just as the first Adam was the founder of the fallen human race, Jesus Christ is the snake-stomping second Adam who has become the founder of the redeemed human race. And every human being belongs either to this old fallen humanity or to this new redeemed humanity. Because of the fall, our original allegiance is, and identity is bound to that first Adam. But when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior by faith alone, our identity and our allegiance is transferred to Christ. This is the robust theology that is dripping from every word of this fourth stanza. But what do we do with this? What do we do with this kind of theology? Well, this hymn turns it back into prayer. Prayer for Christ to apply these truths to our souls, that they would transform us from the inside out. And so we ask Jesus, the desire of nations, that he would not just come into the world, but come into our hearts and make them his home. We beg Jesus not just to rise in victory over sin and death, but to rise victoriously in our hearts to conquer the sin that lives within us, to bruise the head of the serpent that lurks within our very souls, and to put our sinfulness itself to death. 
We ask Jesus to wipe out that image of the first Adam from our souls and to stamp his own image upon us. Just as the sin and brokenness of the first Adam wrapped its tentacles around us, so now we ask Jesus to clothe us in his righteousness and to set us apart for his holy ways, to reinstate us in God's family as children of the light. This desire and prayer is appropriate for us, especially as we prepare to receive what the Lord offers to us at his table this morning. We prepare our hearts by crying out, come, Lord Jesus, defeat sin in us, rule in our hearts, erase our old ways, and lead us to walk in your ways. Make us new to you alone be the glory. And so as we continue our worship, let us pray and ask him to reign within us and to draw us closer into his presence as we prepare to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper today. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your promise, for the mystery of your love for us, for the good news that the angels declared so many years ago that you have come to bring us peace, peace with one another and peace with you. Lord, we marvel at these mysteries that are so great for us. And yet we know, Lord, our need for you. So we ask that you would rule within us. We ask us that you would draw our hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that you would show us areas in our lives where the serpent's head needs to be crushed. Show us areas in our lives where we need to be remade in your image. Mold us, Lord, and fashion us. And equip us, Lord, to join with the triumph of the skies in declaring with joy and gladness who you are and what you have accomplished. We pray these things in Christ's name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.